you know, I guess for lack of better terms, let's call a spade a spade. I, I am a white middle-class male that was born into privilege. I've never experienced discrimination or sexism. But um, as a person who was raised by an amazing working mother, um, I'm married to a, a wife who is a professional teacher. I'm raising two daughters of my own. I have a little bit of a perspective of what women have to deal with that I do not. Again, that is a tiny view into this that I have. So I wonder if you will share your personal stories of how the workplace and academia are cultural systems that are resistant to, to womanhood and, and to motherhood. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guests for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation are Dr. Deshana Coyer-Gobil and Dr. Nancy Wong-Yoon. Deshana is the founding chair of the Department of Criminal Justice and the interim dean of the School of Behavioral and Applied Sciences at Azula Pacific University. Nancy is associate professor of sociology at Biola University. They have co-edited a new book, Power Women. Dr. Yoon, Dr. Collier-Gobil, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having thank us. You for ha- yeah, thank you for having us. <laughs> So I'm not going to lie, uh, Deshana, when I was uh, writing down your credentials for the opener, um, I got lost in the thought of half of these words are way above my pay grade. So tell us <laughs> a little bit more about what you do. 
Uh, so, I mean, the short version is that I study crime and justice. So I study the ways that there are inequities in the criminal justice system. So race, class, gender, um, those ways. That's, that's my field of study. That's my research area and interest. And so I had the amazing privilege of starting a department of criminal justice at Azusa Pacific University um, about six or seven years ago. So started the program. Um, it has grown and flourished, hired amazing faculty, and then more recently was um, had the opportunity to lead the school that the criminal justice department is housed within. So I now lead um, as interim dean, the School of Behavioral and Applied Sciences that covers nine different departments, uh, graduate students, undergraduate students, and what we call professional students, which are students um, returning to complete like bachelor's completion programs. Uh, Nancy, uh, in addition to, uh, to teaching sociology classes, you're also an avid writer of, of pop culture. So is this kind of like a, a Batman, Bruce Wayne by day, Dark Knight of Gotham by night? Tell us about this fascinating intersection of sociology and pop culture. Yeah, it's really fun. I, I, I've actually been the same person. So perhaps uh, if we imagine Batman and Bruce Wayne always, you know, being the same in their core, I, uh, I have always uh, been interested in pop culture. I grew up uh, Generation X latchkey kid, pretty much raised myself on television. And I'm actually writing a memoir right now about my childhood and teenage life through the TV shows and movies I watched. So, um, but, you know, I've also been interested in representation. I think um, growing up as an immigrant to this country at age five, I, I started watching TV and trying to figure out what is this country that I am now a part of and realizing, I think maybe even when I was little, but certainly when I got into college that there was a disconnect between what I was seeing on TV and what my real life was. And, and growing up in Southern California is very diverse community, um, even in the eighties and, and then never seeing that on screen at all. So in college uh, and then in grad school, I just started to do research on that and interview people from Hollywood. My book, Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism, is based on 100 interviews that was done during grad school. And now it's a book. And I now consult for Hollywood uh, studios. I'm actually um, now going to introduce a, a film series at the new Academy Museum in Los Angeles on Anime Wong. And so I'm just, you know, it's, it's really so much fun and and also so much so hard i think to also talk about you know the the history of racism in hollywood and it's ongoing um the fight isn't over um but i really also enjoy just being able to talk about it with students and and just you know be able to have this i think um, common language i think um you know, um, I, I kind of sometimes joke that pop culture has become kind of a world church in that we all share, um, like, for example, the Marvel universe, if we're talking about, you know, Batman and, um, and you know, the other universe, <laughs> the one that's more popular, especially because of Disney. I think everybody knows, even if they haven't seen the movies, it's like, it's, it's part of our, our shared culture now. And so to be able to talk about something as heavy as racism and sexism and bigotry through the lens of Marvel Universe or pop culture. It's, it's a way for, uh, for students to be able to communicate and just for you know, even people on social media to be able to talk about the issues that are sometimes hard to talk about, but you know, talking about it through pop culture makes it a little easier. 
So you've co-edited a new book, Power Women. Uh, this book is a, a curation of stories of motherhood, faith, and academia from women from across the country. You wrote, Professor Mothers are on the rise. In 2014, 80% of women ages 40 to 44 with PhDs or professional degrees had given birth, compared to 65% in 1994. Working mothers face many career hurdles compared to working fathers. Deshana, why was working on this book uh, important to you? Oh, my goodness. Um, so it was... So one, I want to start off just by saying it was super fun. Um, I got to work on a project with someone who I love dearly and who's like a sister to me. And we, we've worked together for several years now. Um, so we kind of just, it, it's, it kind of morphed out of a program that was already happening at Biola University. And then in addition to that, um, Nancy and I sitting around talking about what is our experience? <laughs> what, what, are, what, what do we face? What's going on with us? What's important to us? What would be helpful for us? Um, what would have been helpful for us as we were preparing for motherhood and the professorate? Um, and so I think for me, that's where, that's why this book is so important is that it gives voice to the experience of so many women and in, in, um, not just in higher ed, but just in power professions in general um, who have to straddle this fence of what we always call work-life balance, right? It's not a balance, it never balances out, but that, <laughs> but this book gives um, hope. Um, it helps those women, us women to be seen. Um, it gives voice to our experience. And then additionally, for people who are thinking of becoming moms and working in a power profession, I think it helps them to kind of lay the road before them. And for those administrators who are leading organizations um, that have power women, it helps them to understand the story a bit more, it nuances it a bit more. Um, so for me, that's why it was important. Nancy, what about you? Yeah, I think that this book is really unique in that uh, I think, you know, the group that Deshana mentioned when we were at Biola, um, that we were reading books about professor moms, but none of them had ever covered uh, what Christian professor mothers go through, right? The kind of intersection of faith and, and being a woman in academia and having family. And I think also the kind of pressures of being a Christian woman, sometimes there are expectations, or I would say maybe biases against, you know, working women, especially working women in, in such power positions and higher, ed, you know, we have PhDs, we have, um, we have uh, more education than a lot of our peers. And so just being in these kind of high power positions as Christian women, this was a very unique uh, set of both uh, gratifying um, I think, uh, you know, just lives, but also challenges that are unique to Christian women. So we really wanted to capture that in this book. And I think that uh, that was something that we, we didn't have, you know, when we were um, young, new professors, you know, trying to figure out how to do that work-life balance and work-life church balance. And, and also in our, in our, you know, families and our relationships 
And as mentors, as, as professors who are modeling for other women, undergraduates and graduates. And I think that all those things were something that motivated us to collect the stories of our peers who were all power women and different points in their lives with different experiences, but hopefully as a whole, able to touch on some authentic truths that will resonate with readers, not just in academia, but beyond. So, you know, I, I guess for lack of better terms, it's called a spade a spade. I, I am a white middle-class male that was born into privilege. I've never experienced discrimination or sexism, but um, as a person who is raised by an amazing working mother, um, I'm married to a, a wife who is a professional teacher. I'm raising two daughters, my own. I have a little bit of a perspective of what women have to deal with that I do not. Again, that is a tiny view into this that I have. So I wonder if you will share your personal stories of how the workplace and academia are cultural systems that are resistant to, to womanhood and, and to motherhood. Uh, and Nancy, we'll start with you. I think for me personally, um, it's I've never thought that I could be limited in any way, like in terms of my own aspirations. And, and I still feel that way. And I have daughters and I, I really want um, that for them as well. And I don't think that, uh, you know, that God expects me to necessarily, um, you know, sacrifice these goals as long as they are glorifying um, and I think that, yeah, that it's been, it, that's been really like a positive in my life. And I think that the higher I got though, I think, I think as a, as a student, you know, as someone who is seen as, um, you know, just kind of starting out, uh, there were a lot of people who wanted to help me. Right. And it felt, you know, very, and I think that a lot of my peers, um, you know, have that experience, but then the higher you get, the more you become, I think, out of place because you're more and more of a minority because there are barriers to to women and women of color in um, in high power positions and so once you start pushing up against um, places that where you know maybe people think that you're not supposed to be at or they've never imagined you there before it, then you start to experience some kind of surprises I think I remember when I was a young uh, professor um, starting out, people didn't think that I was a professor. They thought I was, uh, I mean, maybe a graduate student, maybe staff. Um, and so they would treat me accordingly, right? And I would always have to establish my uh, my authority. And I hated to do that. I wanted to just kind of, you know, be accepted. But, but you know, when people are saying, well, I can't help you, you know, but I'm like, well, this is a computer that actually is issued to me by this university. I, I think, you know, I need your help. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that you were a professor. And so having to always kind of put yourself in that position or being um, skeptical, being what's called like mansplained or, you know, having your own expertise explained back to you because there's this doubt that there's no way that you could have more knowledge about it than others. And I think that, you know, for, for people who are researchers, who are speakers, who are experts in their field, this is, these are, you know, microaggressions that just wear you down. And then they're not always microaggressions, you know, there are also, um, you know, we have a chapter on maternity leave where people think of, uh, or parental leave, thinking of that when women are on parental leave, they're not really actually doing anything or that they shouldn't, you know, just, they don't, they deserve, they don't deserve the same kind of recognition in terms of uh, advancement and promotion. Like there are systemic 
um, barriers that come out because of these biases and perceptions that then affect uh, the success of professor mothers. And so all these things I think are, um, are things that we talk about in the book that are, that are real problems and that I hope that administrators and universities and also just administrators and people you know, who, have, who are part of the system can recognize and especially I think honor and respect and want to recruit very talented you know, women who are, who are at the tops of their fields but are encountering these barriers because of, of you know, a life choice. Deshana? Yeah, I think I would just um, piggyback off of what Nancy was saying. I think that sometimes there have been interpersonal experiences that I've had where people have um, say, which I'm not sure if it's, uh, so this is, I think, the interesting thing, right? And so what I study in research is intersectionality. So I'm, I'm not always able to, to pull apart, like, is this experiencing happening to me because of my gender, because of my race, because I'm a mom, because, right? right? So I'm not really sure which bucket it falls in, um, but I have had interpersonal experiences with people questioning, like, um, exactly what Nancy has alluded to, whether or not I'm able to lead um, an academic unit um, at different levels, right? And that, and that really not being based upon my credentials, but really just being based upon, I, I honestly have no idea what, what it's based upon, um, but then me rising to the occasion and, and demonstrating that that's um, definitely within my wheelhouse and God has so much more for me, who knows where I'm going next. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I have a joke about like selling candles or something <laughs> because it would be more peaceful. Um, but I think in a what what I think shows up in a and I'm not sure if it's I don't want to call it more hurtful, but it, what shows up in a different way are these structural challenges. So let's take the pandemic for example. So coming out of the pandemic and we're kind of we're back and let's get back out there. Even when that happened even when K through 12 school system hadn't decided whether or not they were gonna be returning back or not in our state. Um, and so that's very challenging. I'm a mom of small children. So if my kids are not in school, either I am not available to come into work or um, I'm gonna to have to pay for separate childcare, which, is, which could be quite expensive. Um, and this being the case specifically for me because, and people like me because I solo parent my children. Um, my husband passed away a couple of years ago, so I solo parent my kids. Um, but in that same period of time, when I'm kind of hustling through teaching online, leading a department remotely, leading my team remotely, also caring for my children who are at home, trying to keep their schooling moving forward because I want my children to be able to read, you know, <laughs> age appropriate landmarks. Um, or milestones, um, I'm, I'm barely juggling and keeping it together. While some of my male counterparts in higher ed, this was a time when they were able to kind of really dig in deep and get going on some research and catch fire on new projects and apply for new jobs and do amazing things. So I think sometimes just even structurally thinking about it that way, when a new position is flown, for example, an administrator can think about are there some women who might be feeling burned out because they're coming out of pandemic, but they would be amazing for this position. Maybe I should give them a nudge. Maybe I should give them a hint. 
Um, Cause that's exactly what happened for me is that I had um, another administrator kind of reach out to me and say, hey, we're looking for an interim dean. I think you should think about it. Um, so I think that those are ways that the system has impacted me. I think additionally in our book, we have a chapter on imposter blues and finding rest in God written by Jean Neely. And I think that that's definitely a part of it as well as um, the imposter syndrome. And so when you're growing up in a society where you're not seeing images of you being in these kinds of positions, um, those things inform you. It plays in the back of your head. So even though I came from a family that's very much about education, super supportive, um, and people who have done great things, um, there's still images that play in the back of my head that would limit even where I would see myself reaching towards. Um, and so imposter syndrome is something real that we deal with. And I think moms across the board can say, not, not every mom, but <laughs> several, I'm sure, that we, we have these mommy blues where we're, we're feeling like, I'm not sure if I'm living up to being a great mom and that kind of comes and goes. And so just being able to deal with all that um, and maintain your confidence and competence um, in your profession at the same time are just some different nuanced struggles um, that I think we deal with. The statistics at this point in the pandemic are, are rattling um, as, uh, as has amplified the constraints that organizations put on women, especially mothers. You know, with many women leaving their job to care for children schooling remotely or, or aging parents in need of caregivers, you know, what can be done culturally to stop the assumption of women as the primary caregivers while it's assumed that the male partner will, will still go to work? And what kind of effect will this trend from the pandemic happen or have on the, on the progress of gender equality in, in the workplace? Uh, Deshana? Wow, my off mute. Okay, yeah, wow, that was a great question. And we actually have a chapter written by Joy Qualls about navigating marriage as the breadwinner. Um, so speaking to that exact <laughs> circumstance, um, when we are flipping these, and I think for academic moms, this is sometimes the case where the the academic, the faculty member, the administrator is the one who is the breadwinner in the family. Um, and that is a very different uh, perspective, I think, than what our society is um, embracing at present. I think coming out of the pandemic, some of the things that we can do is um, understand that flexibility is key. I think one of the awesome and amazing things about my particular job, so working in Christian higher ed, I think specifically, they tend to be very family-friendly environments. Um, and there tend to be just, yeah, just understanding that I, I can get the work done. So my supervisor, for example, he starts his leadership team meeting at 10 a.m. on a Monday instead of 8 a.m. on a Monday. Because myself and one of his other team members need to get our kids dropped off at school. I mean, and so sometimes it's something just as simple as that. <laughs> a meeting that's going to have the same level of productivity at, at 10 a.m. Um, that it would have had at 8 a.m., that slight adjustment is a nod in the direction of demonstrating to me that they understand 
what I need to do as a mom. And when my kids are taken care of as a mom, I'm able to fully focus on work and be more productive. Um, so I think as we continue to kind of move into this, I'm not sure if we can call it post-pandemic, but <laughs> post-2020 <laughs> timeframe, that we can think about what are what are these small ways that we can make these adjustments because we do have people that have different childcare needs and concerns. Ants, any thoughts? Yeah, I think that we have another chapter uh, called Recategorization, A Grace for Working Moms by Dr. G. Sun, who is a, a cognitive scientist. And she actually, it, you know, because it's, it's really hard because moms and dads, you know, they, we want to be good parents. And a lot of times, um, I think moms put a lot of pressures on ourselves uh, because of societal uh, and you know, religious, whatever um, conceptions we have of motherhood. And she actually tongue in cheek says, you know, why don't we reconceptualize ourselves as dads? <laughs> and is this similar in terms of breadwinner um, or just, you know, just taking kind of the pressures off of having to do it all. Like I'm not the kind of mom who's going to buy birthday decorations. I mean, Deshauna is, she's, she's like an amazing <laughs> birthday party planner. But for me like that, I, I have to cut certain, certain things out because I just can't possibly do it all. And, and why, you know, if I thought of myself as a dad, maybe I don't even need to do those things at all because, because those, those things are not necessarily what's going to, you know, help my children thrive. Um, and, and a a lot of times it's about meeting societal um, pressures rather than, you know, whatever works for the family. And I think that in my household, there is a, there is a pretty good division of labor. Um, and so that it feels more, more egalitarian and it feels like um, we're both involved in children's lives. And, and yeah, and if I, if I can't handle something, then I just speak out. And I think that, you know, over time, we've had to have lots of discussions because I think I remember when I was, when the children were really young, it was this kind of like, how can I help you, Nancy? And I was like, you're not helping me. These are your children, you know, we're both in it together. So having to have those, the kind of a change in language, change in the way framing of, of how um, caring for children should, should happen and, and could happen because, you know, we, we do want, I think everyone wants to be loved um, and wants to love our children in ways that are, um, that are to our giftings, right? And I think that, um, yeah, my gifting isn't necessarily like doing the, the huge decor, but, you know, I will um, bake with my children, even though I hate baking with them, I will do it. You know? And so like, there's certain things that, you know, we, we do and compromises. And I think balance is really important and have, and having open conversation and hopefully having compassion and grace for ourselves and for one another. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. 
This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So there's a layer of dealing um, with all of this and, and being a woman and parenting with higher education, but then there's also dealing with the systemic racism within higher education. Um, Nancy, can you, can you paint a picture for us of the reality of, of racism within academia? Oh, wow. Well, where do I start? <laughs> um, a whole separate that's... podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is was, a whole separate podcast whole separate for book. sure. A series, a whole, a whole series. Book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think about even just recently, like, um, you know, Black women, Black men not getting tenure at uh, prestigious institutions and research institutions and that you know these were more like public um pub publicly recognized but for every single public uh scandal i guess um it, there are so many so many faculty of color who are not considered um for promotion etc because of, of discrimination right because of um of I mean, things like collegiality, what a what an abstract concept, right? To, to think of someone as uncollegial, but that could just be like, you know, I don't, I'm not comfortable with someone who doesn't look like me. And so therefore I'm going to label them as uncollegial. And this is happening across higher ed. Um, I mean, I, I, it's so funny, we talk about, you know, my, my expertise in, in popular culture, there was uh, this show called The Chair that that uh, streamed on Netflix. And I wrote a lot about that um, because as an Asian American woman, you know, and having to, you know, I've also been uh, a chair of my department and Deshana having her leadership, we know what it's like to want to have ideal goals and, and yet the kind of um, barriers that, that come up, the discrimination, the the doubting of our ability, but also doubting of our goals, right? Maybe we want to turn around and pull up uh, other women of color like ourselves, but then, you know, but maybe that doesn't align with necessarily the goals of, of our, you know, whether it's our department, division, university, whatever it is in all over the country, um, those barriers, it's, it's not just kind of the microaggressions, it's not just the, the maybe, um, 
you know, lack of support, but also just uh, we have different, sometimes we have different values, right? We want to see students of color, faculty of color, staff of color thrive, but that's not necessarily the goal of, of most universities, even if they say it is. Um, the I, I've seen, you know, as sociologists, we are, we are in, you know, we're in a, a a kind of discipline that should really care about equality and inclusion. But I have seen my colleagues who even study inequality, you know, white men who, who when it comes to opportunities, they're like, well, you know, it's not fair for white men, even though all of them ended up in research one top positions, but because they didn't get one fellowship or something, they blamed it on some sort of preference for, you know, women and people of color. So there is this misconception, right, this myth. Um, but when you look at the statistics, that's just, it doesn't bear out. There are, there are still so few women of color uh, tenured faculty around the country in higher, higher ed positions and administrative positions presidents of universities there's just so few i mean and so but i think that we're in a battle right now not just in higher ed but in our society over over how do we talk about difficult parts in our history how do we talk about discrimination how do we how do we deal with a society that's increasingly becoming diverse and yet um, equality and opportunities are not, um, you know, are not, are uneven across the board. And there's not just, you know, opportunities, but violence and policing and all sorts of um, life death situations, right, that, uh, that have an impact on our, our most marginalized communities. And so, yeah, this is definitely, <laughs> this is enough to talk about in a whole another five, six hour podcast. <laughs> but in higher ed, uh, you know, we are, we're part of this, this institution that's supposed to be educating and hopefully, you know, advancing our society. And yet uh, higher ed sometimes is the, is some of the most discriminatory places that, that reify and reproduce inequality in our society. Deshana? Yeah, I I think Nancy covered it well. I, I will just add, I think it starts, um, if you're kind of looking for where and how does it start and operate in higher ed, um, I would say, I, yeah, where, where does it begin? So does it begin when a faculty member is in a classroom with, with students of color and is slowly but subtly um, influencing students of color in a different professional direction than other students or critiquing their work in a different way than other students um, or just not failing to acknowledge that like, whoa, this your level of work is amazing. You should think about a PhD program um, when they are in the habit of saying that to other students. Um, does it start where, and I've heard this very often, where people will say things to me like, there just aren't a lot of faculty of color who teach this subject that are Christian, if it's a Christian university. Um, and it's quite amazing to me, not in a good way, because I graduated from Howard University where I'm like, so this isn't the only HBCU that produces PhDs. There are several. And my graduating class was at least a hundred people. And you know, like that was that wasn't even considered large. So it, you know, people are there. It's just where are you looking? Um, are you what are you doing to recruit? Um, what have you done within yourself and your department to make yourself a good landing place um, for a faculty a faculty member of color? Like, are you are you even attractive to them? Um, so, because there are things that we can see um, just from 
window shopping. So just from looking at your website, what you talk about, what you highlight, what you fail to talk about, what you fail to highlight, who's already on your faculty, whether it's diverse or not. Um, those are all things that are key that will provide a lot of information to me about whether or not this is a department that I would enter and be injured in. Um, so I think, yeah, there, there's a lot of places, even, I mean, the next level. So I, I could really just go up every level asking these same questions. When you think about leadership, when you're looking at middle managers, when you're looking at top level leadership, how diverse are those folks, right? Because this again is going to send messages to people as to whether or not they are, uh, this is a university that will even put a person of color in a leadership position. What kind of leadership position do you have the person of color in? Is it a CDO? So the only person of color is this chief diversity officer there? What is, what is that person's purview? What, what, how, what budget do they hold? How, who do they supervise, right? So all of these small, subtle ways, and I, and I mentioned these things because sometimes what'll happen is people will say, well, well, we'll get this person of color, and then they kind of do what we call is tokenize them. Um, and so they'll kind of put them in a position by title only without really giving them any positionality or power to make um, any change at the university or speak into um, changes already in motion in the university. Um, it's kind of a wink and nod to like, see, we, we can be diverse, um, but we can we can see through those things. And I would say, you know, especially today, there's so many colleges in the U.S. Um, and abroad that um, people have choice. So, yeah, that's what I would think of from the student level all the way up through administration. I think we need to ask ourselves different colors questions and those questions should be um who's missing what voice is missing from the table um who's marginalized within our community and how can we have how can we place that that group's voice at the center of our decision making practices and policies um and i think that those are just two questions that can get us started moving in the right direction all right, so before I move forward, can I get y'all to commit to, uh, let's say, an eight-part podcast series where you can specifically talk on racism in academia? <laughs> I think our, our universities may not <laughs> want us to. If it's eight-part, yeah. then it's going to get so specific. And, um, you know, yeah. and, and this yeah. is not endemic to any one particular institution. This is, we know that this is a problem across so many institutions and and not just academia. Again, we're we're in a society that needs a lot of healing, needs a lot of yeah. reckoning, right? So, so this is uh this is actually probably the pot the, you know the podcast topic of our of our of our times of our lifetime, um in the United States, and it's hard. And I'm glad. Thank you for 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 asking the question because I feel like you know we're not talking about it enough in Christian communities. Well, let's go there because there's a unique aspect of this book and the sense of, you know, um, you obviously wrote this as, as a woman, uh, as, you know, a person of academia, um, as two people who, you know, fit into the category of quote, um, you know, minority within America. But then you also wrote this from the angle as two people of faith. So, so why is the faith element important to this book? Um, Deshana? Oh my goodness. I mean, my, so I was going to say to me, like my faith is what keeps me grounded um, and keeps me centered. 
and allows me to fight on to have another day whether that means like going through a day of like twin fights i have my kids are twins so going through a day of twin fights and tantrums and meltdowns or fights and tantrums and meltdowns at work um it's, it's um my faith is what keeps me um grounded god is my refuge and i really live by that day to day so i think for me there's it's there's no way for me to talk about being a mom being an academic being a professor without talking about my faith um and how god has served um helped me to serve well so i think that's um we i get into that a little bit more we nancy and i have a chapter on um it takes a village raising children with support and so i talk in that chapter a little bit more specifically about um the death of my spouse and now um having to solo parent and how god has really um shown up in a whole different way and kick kick me kick things into a whole different level of like oh my gosh jesus i had no idea you could do all these things um for me so i think for me that that's the reason why it was important to let parents know moms know that like we really can lean into our faith we really can lean into god in even the toughest moments um that's why there's a book of lamentations you know <laughs> you can really um hit god with the hard questions with the hard scenarios and hard situations and god will definitely be your refuge um so that's the reason why i think it's central for me for this to for, for my faith to be discussed in the book not to skip nancy and and asking you know the same question but i wonder um you know as you look at um uh, the 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 diverse contributions to this book uh you know if you had to pick one contributor to highlight which one would you choose and why Oh my gosh, that's that's such a hard question. It's like asking which of your children would you would you highlight? Which is going to be the next question, by the way, because they're listening. Which child would you that's pick? Right. Let's let's just you know, create that trauma right now. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh gosh, you know there are so many great chapters um, in this book. I think that one thing, and to kind of answer your previous question, is that you'll. Uh, readers will have so much encouragement and see how God manifests in each uh, woman's life in in terms of um, what a servanthood look like in you know when you're the breadwinner and your husband is you know the stay at home um, dad what does um, what does mm, like spiritual formation look like when you know you have to balance out motherhood and and scholarship and you know and i think that um gene neely's chapter that deshana mentioned before um how can we conceptualize god and mother you know mother god um god is both father and mother and we don't talk about the mothering enough right and i think that to to conceptualize god as mother and to then think about how uh, we as mothers um you know have that kind of unconditional love and in both receiving that love from God and giving that love to our children um, is there's just so much beauty in each of these chapters and an encouragement. I think we we do talk because we're sociologists. We do talk about the, the the obstacles and the barriers and the challenges. But I think 
because of the faith element throughout these chapters, there's just so much encouragement. And, and I know that a lot of our readers um, have talked about crying while reading the chapters, just being so moved and feeling seen for the first time. Because I think that as Christian mothers and professors, we do have this kind of unique intersectionality that um, that is just, um, you know, we need to talk about all aspects of ourselves, our whole selves, right? We bring our whole selves to our work, to our families, to our churches. And I think that it's hard to pick just one chapter because I think so, I think, you know, for as many um, readers and audiences out there, uh, you know, there are as many chapters that they're each are going to find um, themselves and aspects of themselves and maybe, you know, relate to more. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, that we have a great diverse group of women because we are women of color, our friends <laughs> circles are diverse. And so this is why we need more, more diversity in, in higher ed and just, you know, all over in all institutions, because those are the social circles. That's how we're going to be bringing in more diversity. And so we didn't go out intending to, you know, to have a diverse group of women. Well, maybe we did, <laughs> but I think that we, you know, we wanted to highlight people that we knew and respected and that will bring unique perspectives. So I think that this book would just be encouraging to so many people that whose voices maybe haven't been heard. Deshauna, my, my scripted next question for you was going to be, which of the twins do you love the most? But I figured that might be inappropriate um, to, to ask you. So, um, you know, as as you think about this book, obviously, you know, you wrote it for uh, many people who are serving in academia, but the certain aspect of it is for people of faith, people connected with the local congregation, how do you imagine local congregations might utilize uh, this resource for um for the progress of, of equity? Oh, that's a great question. Um, what I'll say is that we actually end, uh, there are questions in the appendix of the um, book. There's some like study guide kinds of questions for if people want to read them together, like say a group of people want to read it together. And so I think that that's an excellent way that congregations can um, help to delve into the content of each chapter a bit more. And I think that the subject matter is open enough where um, it really does apply to multiple industries, although we are all speaking about and employed within higher ed. Um, I think additionally, because it's because it's a book of such diverse background authored by so such diverse contributors, um, just reading the stories of the women um, who will bring in what their life experience is. I, I think I heard from one person, one a friend of mine who has already read the book. And so she was saying to me that um, she, it brought her to tears because people were so vulnerable in their chapters. Um, and I think that this is, it's an excellent opportunity to have a window into um, the experience and perspective of these women um, that happen to be very diverse. Um, so that can be an opener, like an opening to understanding that the world is experienced differently, um, depending on your social location in it. The book is Power Women. Our guests are Nancy Wong Yoon and Deshana Collier Gobiel. Uh, thank you both for making the time to have this conversation. Um, and thank you for putting out this incredible resource uh, to cause many of us who are beneficiaries 
um, a privilege to reconsider uh, how we approach these conversations. Thank you. For Thank you so us. much for having us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. Yes. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including Black Church Studies, Rural Ministry, and Pastoral Care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in Black Church Studies, Rural Ministries, and Pastoral Care, as well as two Exploring Ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 